Attend, my friends, to a strange, strange tale. A tale of love, passion, obsession, murder, madness, demonic orgies, drug-induced hallucinations, and classical music. Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique. I am Carlos Botero. And I'm Sinjin Flynn. And this is the Houston Symphonies on the Music. In this episode, discover the stranger-than-fiction story behind one of history's most imaginative pieces of music, Bellio's Symphonie Fantastique. Join us as we reveal the art, the ideas, and the woman that inspired Bellio's most often-performed masterpiece. On the left bank of the River Seine, the Théâtre de l'Odéon was packed to capacity. The audience awaited the French premiere of a play that had been written over 200 years before. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw and resolve itself into a dew. This was the first time Hamlet or any work of Shakespeare had ever been performed in France. The surprise star of the evening was an unknown Irish beauty, Harriet Smithson, who played the role of Ophelia. I would give you some violets, but they withered all when my father died. They say he made... Her inspired performance brought many to tears. Some even felt compelled to leave the theater after her mad scene, unable to bear the intense emotion her performance provoked. Shakespeare was a revelation for the French. He broke all the rules of classical French theatre and yet moved them to the core of their beings. Everyone who was anyone in French artistic circles was there that night, including a young music student from the Conservatoire de Paris, the aspiring composer Hector Berlioz. Of average height, with a slight chin, hawk-like nose, expressive grey eyes and untamed masses of reddish hair, the young Berlioz would have been an unmistakable sight in the theatre that evening. A sensitive, artistic soul who had wept over Virgil's Aeneid during his boyhood Latin lessons, he was shaken by the performance and transfixed by Miss Smithson's beauty. At first, he resolved never to see another Shakespeare play again. He had been so violently moved. But... Five days later, he returned for a performance of Romeo and Juliet. Quote, From that moment, my fate was sealed. After the melancholy, the harrowing sufferings, the tearful love, the bitter irony, the black meditation, the heart-rending sorrows, the madness, the tears, mourning, catastrophes, and malign fortune of Hamlet, the dark clouds and icy winds of Denmark, the change was too great to the hot sunshine and balmy nights of Italy. To the love, quick as thought, burning as lava, imperious, irresistible, illimitably pure and beautiful as the smile of an angel. The raging revenges, delirious embraces, and desperate struggles between love and death. And so, at the end of the third act, scarcely able to breathe, stifled with a feeling as though an iron hand held my heart in its grip, 
I cried out, Ah, I am lost. He fell madly, irrationally in love with Harriet. Or was it with Ophelia, or Juliet, or Desdemona? For Berlioz, they were all one and the same. Harriet embodied his ideal of the perfect woman, the woman he had dreamt of since he had first begun to dream of women. His passion soon became an obsession. He went to see her perform night after night. He began sending her an incessant stream of love letters. He even moved into an apartment across the street from hers and watched her from his window. He began to feel ill. Pain rocked his body. His appetite waned. Harriet did not return his feelings. She had never met him and was disturbed by his behavior. Though his friends tried to dissuade him, Berlioz could not forget her. As Harriet quickly became the most celebrated actress in all Paris, Berlioz was determined to get her attention. He would prove to her that he, too, was an artist. But how? The answer came the following spring. After the French Revolution, symphonic music had all but died out in Paris. In its place were grand operas, Italian operas, opera comique, melodramas, vaudeville, dance halls, circus acts, and all manner of entertainment. The young Berlioz idolized the operatic dramas of Weber, Spontini, and above all, Gluck. He had little knowledge of symphonies, however. One man, the eminent violinist and early pioneer of the art of conducting, François Habeneck, decided to organize a series of orchestral concerts featuring radical new music that Parisians had never heard before. For the first time, the mature symphonies of Beethoven were heard in Paris a year after the composer's death. Beethoven proved as great a revelation as Shakespeare had. The audiences that crammed into the small concert hall at the Conservatoire were profoundly affected by this radical new music. In one famous incident, a veteran of Napoleon's Grande Armée rose to his feet during the Fifth Symphony and shouted, L'Empereur! The Parisian musical world was divided by Beethoven. Many older musicians and teachers at the Conservatoire condemned him for breaking the sacred rules of music. But many of the younger generation were electrified. For Berlioz, Beethoven's symphonies revealed to him the dramatic storytelling power of purely instrumental music. If a symphony could tell Beethoven's stories of epic struggle and triumph, then maybe they could also tell his story of desperate love. Berlioz resolved to write a grand symphony that would take Beethoven's innovations to the next level. A symphony that would be a novel in music. A symphony fantastique. It would make his name as a composer and finally express his love for Harriet in a way she could no longer ignore. For two years, Berlioz struggled to begin his symphony, but was unable to get started. 
other compositions, frequent bouts of depression and illness brought on by his obsession with Harriet, and financial strain may have prevented him from embarking on this ambitious project. Then in the early months of 1830, rumors began circulating about Harriet. Word was that she was having an affair with her manager. When Bellios heard, he was devastated. The idealized image he had formed of Harriet was shattered, and the spell was broken. Dejected, but free from his delusional lovesickness, Bellios was finally able to begin his grand symphony, unleashing a torrent of creativity as he plunged into it. Though he would revise and alter the score for many years, he completed the first draft in only six weeks. By the time he finished it, Berlioz had written one of the century's most original and controversial pieces of music. The symphony broke many of the conventional rules that Berlioz's teachers at the Conservatoire had tried to instill in him. It twisted, distorted, and added to the conventional form of a symphony. It violated basic principles of harmony. It included bizarre orchestral effects no one had ever heard before. The most controversial aspect of the symphony, however, had nothing to do with the music. Unlike most composers of symphonies, Berlioz sought to tell an explicit story with his music. In a way, this was not so unusual. The movements, or individual parts of a symphony, often progressed in a similar way to a story. After a slow introduction, the composer would present the main melodies and ideas in a section known as the exposition, similar to the exposition of a novel. Then the ideas would be developed in a more tumultuous section called the development, similar to the rising action. Last, the main ideas would return, changed by the development, and the tension would be resolved, similar to the conclusion of a story. Berlioz, however, wanted to go beyond suggesting the feeling of a story. He wanted to tell a specific story, his story. He was likely inspired by Beethoven's pastoral symphony, which had descriptive titles for each movement. Berlioz wanted to take Beethoven's idea even further and said exactly what each movement was about in detailed program notes that he gave to the audience at the premiere. The strange story therein aroused the public's curiosity. His musical novel told a tale that blurred the lines between fiction and reality, love and hatred, genius and insanity. Just as they did at the premiere, Berlioz's program notes will serve as our guide as we delve into this strange and fantastical music. The symphony begins theatrically, with a melancholy musical curtain rising to reveal a moonlit stage. We then hear a beautiful but sorrowful melody in C minor in the strings. Berlioz titled the opening movement Reverie, Passion, and wrote, The author imagines a young musician afflicted with that moral disease that a well-known writer calls the vague de passion. The well-known writer was the influential romantic author Chateaubriand. He had described the vague de passion, or wave of passions, as a melancholy, aimless state of the soul in which a young person's emotions are turned inward. 
The slow introduction of this movement depicts the reveries or daydreams of such a youth. Berlioz wrote a melody that depicts these reveries many years earlier. As a boy growing up in the French countryside, Berlioz fell in love with a lovely young woman named Estelle. Berlioz had been rebuffed, but his yearning found expression in a mythological play he secretly read in his father's library. The play centers on a beautiful nymph named Estelle. He took verses from it and set them to the melody that opens the Symphonie Fantastique. Suddenly, the music seems to come to life. Alas, these groundless joys, as Berlioz calls them, are soon overcome by the Vague des Passions. We hear a variation on the Estelle melody. This exquisite orchestral texture was unprecedented. As a composer, Berlioz was fascinated by the colors of musical instruments and always strove to discover new orchestral effects. At the premiere, the audience would have heard many sounds that had never been heard before. The music begins to evolve, changing key from minor to major. In his notes, Berlioz wrote that the young musician, quote, sees for the first time a woman who embodies all the charms of the ideal being he has imagined in his dreams, and he falls desperately in love with her. He refers to this melody as an idée fixe, or fixed idea a term that was loaded with meaning in early 19th century Paris. In the wake of the French Revolution and the bloody reign of terror that followed it, many began to doubt the power of reason and the Enlightenment-era philosophies that had led to the guillotine. What if humans are inherently irrational, they wondered? What if projects based on reason and common sense were doomed to fail? Artists became fascinated by the irrational and began to explore themes of the supernatural, nature, imagination, childhood, the medieval, the macabre, and the insane. The field of psychiatry came into being as physicians sought to categorize and understand madness with a new sense of urgency and public interest. One psychiatric disorder fascinated society above all, monomania. Monomania was a disease in which the thoughts of the afflicted were dominated by one all-consuming idea, an idée fixe. One of the most common forms was erotic monomania, in which the monomaniac was obsessively in love with someone or even something. Often the object of desire was a fictional character 
or an unattainable stranger. For Berlioz, who often referred to Harriet as Ophelia or Juliet, it was clearly both. The monomaniac was enthralled by the imaginary, idealized vision of the beloved and was often tormented by delusions, illness and psychological instability. Given the sexually repressive culture of 19th century Europe, it is not surprising that many young men and women channeled their repressed desires into sublimated fantasies. Early psychiatrists believed that it was especially sensitive, intelligent, artistic types who were susceptible to monomania. Indeed, popular plays, novels and poems of the time often interpreted mental illness as a sign of artistic genius. Berlioz knew what was wrong with him, but instead of telling him to stop, society told him that madness was his destiny. Berlioz wrote, quote, Whenever the beloved appears before the mind's eye of the artist, it is linked with a musical thought whose character, passionate but at the same time noble and shy, he finds similar to the one he attributes to the beloved. The melodic image and the model it reflects pursue him incessantly like a double idée fix. This melody has a highly irregular phrase structure. After a quick ascent, the end of each phrase is stretched out in a sigh. The only accompaniment is the unmistakable thumping rhythm of a heartbeat. The melody grows more intense, rising with yearning desire. Only to fall away and resolve. Berlioz described what follows as, quote, frenzied passion, with its movements of fury, of jealousy, its return of tenderness, its tears, its religious consolations. This is the subject of the first movement. The music swerves widely between extremes of high and low, soft and loud, slow and fast. Berlioz writes strange harmonic progressions that climax on highly unstable diminished chords. This is music that would have sounded insane to Berlioz's teachers. But there was probably just the effect he wanted. At this point in the music, composers like Mozart, Haydn and Beethoven would typically present a second melody to contrast with the first. But no second melody appears. Instead, we hear a sped-up version of the Ide Fix. Clearly, there can only be one melody in this movement. Abruptly, we return to the original form of the Ide Fix. We then hear a repeat of the music that followed it, the exposition. This repeat of the exposition is very traditional, but the way Berlioz does it is not. 
after the repeat, we entered the development. Inspired by Beethoven's example, Berlioz vastly expands the proportion of this tumultuous section of the movement. Here, he reveals some of his strangest ideas. We hear a disorienting chromatic passage that builds up to... nothing. The idea fix then reappears over the breathless panting of the strings. The idea fix also briefly becomes a fugue. The music settles into a calmer passage with hints of foreboding. At last, a new melody appears in the oboe. This is a pure, sincere, heartfelt aria, worthy of Berlioz's idol, Gluck. It is soon lost amidst hazy fragments of the Idefix. The twisted harmonies create a sense of distorted reality, as if madness is overpowering us. Finally, the idea fix returns in a climax of frenzied passion. As the music backs away from his climatic passage for full orchestra, we approach the end of the movement. Because there is only one main melody, the recapitulation is already over. originally ended here, but as a brilliant afterthought, Berlioz later added a passage marked religiosamente, or religiously. We hear the ide fix one last time. 
than the soft alternation of chords traditionally used for the word Amen. As the movement ends with hushed reverence, we cannot help but wonder, is this prayerful veneration meant for heaven or the beloved? Berlioz actually composed the second movement last. Traditionally, symphonies have only four movements, and originally Berlioz went straight into a slow movement here. Struck by inspiration, he decided to add a fifth movement, a waltz. Beethoven's five-movement pastoral symphony may have also served as inspiration. There may also be a purely musical reason why Berlioz added the religiosamente ending to the first movement, to provide the perfect transition to the opening of the waltz. The waltz begins with a magical introduction. It begins in A minor, a closely related key to C major, the key of the first movement. Harps and tremolo strings play a series of enchanting harmonies leading us to the distant key of A major. When we arrive, we have left the interior world of reveries, passion, for the outside world of ball. Berlioz wrote, quote, The artist finds himself in the most diverse situations in life, in the tumult of a festive party, in the peaceful contemplation of the beautiful sights of nature. Yet everywhere, whether in town or in the countryside, the beloved image keeps haunting him and throws his spirit into confusion. In contrast with the strange, irregular melodies and harmonies of the first movement, the waltz melody is almost disorientingly normal. Its pretty, catchy four-bar phrases whisk us through a glittering ballroom. Our young musician is surrounded by perfectly sane people who know nothing of his monomaniacal fantasies. The decision to include a waltz in a symphony was quite original. As far as we are aware, this is the first symphony to include a waltz movement. In 1830, the waltz was still considered a form of flight music that serious composers wouldn't bother with. Including a waltz in this symphony was a strikingly contemporary move for Berlioz, who was perhaps inspired by Weber's piano piece, Invitation to the Dance. Later composers such as Brahms, Dvorak, and Tchaikovsky would also write waltzes into their symphonies, but Berlioz was first. The distractions of the dance, however, cannot compete with the irresistible draw of the idée fixe. 
A hush draws over the orchestra as the music changes key. Sure enough, the Idefix reappears. Now in three-quarter time in F major, one of the chords Berlioz used in the Amen at the end of the first movement. The original version of this passage had a simple accompaniment, but Berlioz later rewrote it, interweaving fragments of the waltz theme around the Idefix. The ball is still going on around our young musician, even though the beloved has now taken possession of his thoughts. The waltz theme returns with enriched orchestral textures. As it draws to its end, the dancing becomes faster and faster. Suddenly the idea fix appears once more in the clarinet. Lovely but ever distant, the beloved soon vanishes. Oblivious to our young musician's anguish, the waltz rushes to its end, leaving our hero alone amidst a swirling crowd of dancers. In the next movement, the tempo slows down and we are transported to the countryside for a scene in the fields. This movement gave Berlioz more trouble than any of the others. He completely rewrote it after the premiere. What he ultimately wrote is one of his most poetic utterances. Describing this movement, he wrote, quote, One evening in the countryside, the young musician hears two shepherds in the distance dialoguing with their rendez-vache. The rendez-vache, which literally translates as row of cows, was a type of melody often played by shepherds and cowherds in the Alps. Berlioz could see the foothills of the Alps from the little town of La Côte Saint-André, where he grew up, so he may easily have heard melodies of this kind when wandering the countryside as a boy. The movement opens with the Ronde de Vache in the English horn, an instrument traditionally associated with pastoral settings. An off-stage oboe responds as if a shepherd were answering from across a valley.
The music turns minor as the duet continues. The orchestra enters pianissimo, as soft as possible, with tremolo violas. This is no longer a simple shepherd's song, but a subjective expression of the young artist's state of mind. Berlioz wrote, quote, This pastoral duet, the setting, the gentle rustling of the trees in the wind, some causes for hope that he has recently conceived, all conspire to restore to his heart an unaccustomed feeling of calm and to give to his thoughts a happier colouring. A sweet melody appears in the violins doubled by a flute with almost no accompaniment. The movement alternates variations on this theme with contrasting interludes, showing off Berlioz's sensitivity to orchestral color. It would seem that our young musician has found some relief from his obsession. The unaccustomed feeling of calm, however, is soon disturbed. Near the middle of the movement, a stormier passage appears. Many have noted its similarity to a passage from one of Berlioz's favorite Beethoven symphonies. The fourth movement of Beethoven's sixth, his pastoral symphony, depicts a great storm. Compare Beethoven. with Berlioz. For Berlioz, however, this is not a storm of wind and rain, but of the soul. Woven into these stormy figures are fragments of the Ide Fix. Berlioz wrote, quote, he broods on his loneliness and hopes that soon he will no longer be on his own. But what if she betrayed him?
This mingled hope and fear, these ideas of happiness, disturbed by dark premonitions, form the subject of the adagio." End quote. The idyllic main melody returns in a solo clarinet accompanied by delicate pizzicato strings. We then hear a more passionate variation in the strings. The movement then begins to die away. Berlioz tells us that, quote, one of the shepherds resumes his rendezvous. The older one no longer answers. Distant sound of thunder, solitude, silence. Up to this point, the plot of Berlioz's musical novel has been fairly realistic. The reveries, passions, ball, and visit to the countryside all could have happened, and more or less did happen to Berlioz, in real life. In the next movement, though, the story becomes much stranger as we move into the world of the fantastique. The word fantastique is usually translated into English as fantastic. While we often use the word fantastic as a rather bland synonym for wonderful today, it also has an older, more interesting meaning. Fantastic shares the same etymological root as fantasy and originally meant having to do with the imaginary or supernatural. Inspired by contemporary romantic literature's fascination with the fantastic, Berlioz wrote, quote, Convinced that his love is spurned, the artist poisons himself with opium. The dose of narcotic, while too weak to cause his death, plunges him into a heavy sleep, accompanied by the strangest of visions. While we can't know for sure, it is entirely possible that Berlioz experimented with opium in an attempt to self-medicate during his bout of monomania. Another likely source of inspiration was Thomas de Quincy's widely read Confessions of an English Opium Eater, which describe the fantastic and nightmarish visions that opium could induce. The psychiatric literature also warned that if unchecked, monomania could lead to suicide or murder. 
Attempted suicide by opium overdose allows Berlioz to introduce both in his symphony. The program continues, quote, He dreams that he has killed his beloved, that he is condemned, led to the scaffold, and is witnessing his own execution. Berlioz actually composed this movement, the March to the Scaffold, first. Its main melody is essentially a simple descending scale in G minor. Throughout the history of music, descending scalar ideas have been used to depict negative emotions of sadness, pain and resignation. To this basic building block of music, Berlioz has added the rhythms of a march. Originally, Berlioz planned to include this music in an opera he ultimately abandoned. In the opera, the march accompanied a procession of guards employed by an evil tyrant. For the symphony, Berlioz reworked and added to the music, transforming it into a nightmarish march to the guillotine. Berlioz wrote, quote, The procession advances to the sound of a march that is sometimes somber and wild, and sometimes brilliant and solemn. This evocation of cheering crowds and guillotines would have been fresh in the minds of those in Berlioz's audience at the premiere. Between his completion of the first draft of the symphony in the spring of 1830 and its premiere in December, there had been another French Revolution. Famously depicted in Delacroix's painting Liberty Leading the People, the Revolution of 1830 lasted only three days, and did not descend into a reign of terror as the first one had. Nevertheless, it would have stirred the memories of older audience members who had lived through the terror. In any case, public executions by guillotine would remain common in France until 1939, so the sights and sounds Berlioz evoked would likely have been familiar to all. Musically, this movement contains many ingenious orchestral effects. Particularly ahead of its time was a technique that the 20th century composer Arnold Schoenberg will later name Clamfarben Melodie, or Tone Color Melody. Berlioz divides a single melodic line among many different instruments, creating a strange, uncanny effect. With increasing dread, we approach nearer and nearer to the scaffold. At last, the guillotine comes into view.
terror seizes us, and we struggle against our captors. Unable to escape, we are forced up the steps. Finally, we are wrestled down into the stalks. Our final thoughts are of our murdered beloved. Our head falls into the basket as the crowd erupts in bloodthirsty ecstasy. Belios reserved his wildest ideas for the final movement, the dream of a witch's Sabbath. He wrote, quote, The young musician sees himself at a witch's Sabbath in the midst of a hideous gathering of shades, sorcerers and monsters of every kind who have come together for his funeral. Strange sounds, groans, outbursts of laughter, distant shouts which seem to be answered by more shouts, end quote. This music is truly unprecedented. He begins with tremolous strings playing a highly dissonant, unstable, diminished chord. This chord is made of two interlocking intervals known as tritones. Traditionally, this interval was known as the devil in music. What sound could be more appropriate for a witch's Sabbath? Though often avoided or handled with care by earlier composers, these diminished chords dominate the opening of this movement. The violins are divided not into two parts as usual, but six, creating a thin, brittle sound. The piccolo, flute and oboe bend their notes unnaturally. Bellios is asking the players to forget everything they learned at the Conservatoire, instructing them to play ugly sounds instead of beautiful ones. We might instantly recognize the music of this movement as spooky, but in 1830, these were sounds no one had ever heard before. Bellios invented this kind of demonic music, which is still the sound of monsters and witches for us today. What happens next is even more shocking. Quote, the beloved melody appears once more, but has now lost its novel and shy character. It is now no more than a vulgar dance tune, trivial and grotesque. It is she who is coming to the Sabbath. There is a quote 
roar of delight at her arrival, and she joins the diabolical orgy. Now the idée fixe is played by a small, squeaky E-flat clarinet instead of the lyrical clarinets that we heard in the previous movement. The beloved has become a witch, words and all. In a private letter to a friend, Berlioz was even more explicit, quote, She is nothing but a courtesan, fit to figure in the orgy. Is Berlioz taking revenge on Harriet by turning her into a vulgar, promiscuous witch? Perhaps a bit, but he also has deeper, more artistic reasons for ending the symphony this way. Long before he heard the rumours about Harriet's alleged affair with her manager, he had planned to end his symphony with a witch's Sabbath. He was inspired by the famous Walpurgisnacht scene from Goethe's Faust, in which the demon Mephistopheles brings Faust to a grotesque orgy of witches and demons. This chapter of Faust inspired many romantic artists, poets and composers who were fascinated by its supernatural vision, which juxtaposed bawdy humour and ghastly horror. Psychologically, this is the ending that makes sense. The same repressed desires that produce the pure, idealised vision of the idea fix also lead to hideous nightmares. Belios's letter continues, quote, The ceremony begins. The bells toll. The whole hellish consort prostrates itself. A chorus chants the plain song sequence of the dead, the Dies Irae. The Dies Irae is a 13th century plain chant hymn that was traditionally used in the Catholic Mass for the dead. Its text describes the terror of the day of judgment. The end of the world when God will judge the good from the bad. While many composers had set the text of the Dies Irae in Requiem Masses, Berlioz was the first modern composer to use the original melody in a symphony. Ever since, composers have used the Dies Irae melody as a symbol of death. To give just two modern examples, the scores of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining or Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd are heavily indebted to Berlioz. Berlioz's demons then take up the Dies Irae, quote, in burlesque parody. Finally, the Sabbath round dance whirls. Ironically, this witch's dance takes the form of a fugue. 
Berlioz did not like fugues. Fugue was a very learned, academic kind of musical style that all students at the Conservatoire were required to master. Berlioz struggled with it. He once failed an important examination in fugue. The tricky thing about fugue is that a fugue should consist of many independent melodies at once. Each melody should be interesting by itself, but should also fit together perfectly with the others. This makes fugues very complex, and for his first grand masterpiece, Berlioz must have been eager to prove that he had thoroughly mastered this technique. Interestingly, in the organ section of the treatise he later wrote on instrumentation, Berlioz rants about the use of organ fugues in churches, concluding that, quote, these fragments of twisted and tangled phrases this continuous commotion, these detestable harmonic absurdities, end quote, are only, quote, appropriate in depicting an orgy or a dance of demons, end quote. In his Symphonie Fantastique, he proved as good as his word and depicted a dance of demons with a fugue. For the climax of his demonic orgy, Berlioz pulls off the ultimate in fugue writing, combining totally different melodies, the Dies Irae and the Witch's Round Dance. The orchestration is ghoulishly brilliant. The strings play coleño with the wood of the bowl, creating insect-like noises. Dancing on the young artist's grave, the beloved and her demons have the last laugh. The world premiere of his Symphonie Fantastique took place the following December, with the esteemed Habeneck leading the Conservatoire Orchestra. The elaborate story of the symphony was published in several newspapers in advance to arouse public curiosity, and it certainly did. One newspaper cheekily noted, quote, We have religious music and plenty of it, but sacrilegious music 
Has anybody composed any before Berlioz? We think not. By all accounts, the concert was a great success. One review read, quote, Monsieur Berlioz has kept his word. His fantastic symphony is truly a musical novel. This composition is the most bizarre monstrosity one can possibly imagine. Its success was complete. End of quote. A young Franz Liszt, who was developing a reputation as the greatest pianist in the world, took Berlioz to dinner after the premiere to congratulate him. Not everyone admired the symphony, however. Its most controversial aspect was not the scandalous nature of the story, but the fact that there was a story at all. One reviewer insisted, quote, Nature herself requires that man remain man, that each species have its laws of reproduction and organization, that painting be painting, and music, music, at the risk of becoming nothing at all. Certainly, a well-made air, a happily fashioned melody, would have put the artist in a better light than that terrible fracas which is still punishing the vaults of the Conservatoire. Berlioz had sparked one of the great musical debates of the 19th century. Should music use words to tell stories, or should it speak for itself? Some felt that for all the specificity that was gained through saying what the music was about, something else was lost, a sense of mystery, an appreciation of music for its own sake. Others argued that if a piece of music needed a program to make sense, then it could not be a very good piece of music. Berlioz seemed to agree with them on this point. He later wrote that the Symphonie Fantastique could be performed without a program at all, saying, quote, the author hopes that the symphony provides on its own sufficient musical interest independently of any dramatic intention. End of quote. For composers like Liszt, Wagner and Richard Strauss, however, Berlioz's brilliant musical storytelling, unconventional harmonies and innovative orchestrations would fuel more musical novels for a century to come. But what about Harriet? Did she ever hear the symphony? Yes, she did hear the symphony, and then they got married. What? Why? Ironically, after Berlioz finished the first draft of the symphony, he found out that the rumours about Harriet and her manager were untrue. He still had feelings for her, but decided to try to move on with his life. He won the Prix de Rome, the most prestigious prize for young composers in France, and set off for an extended stay in Italy. Meanwhile, Harriet Smithson discovered how fleeting fame could be, especially for a leading lady of the stage. Her career took a turn for the worse. Her appearances became less and less frequent. Her weight fluctuated, and she began a long struggle with alcoholism. Berlioz returned from Rome with a newly revised version of the Symphonie Fantastique, plus a sequel to it called L'Elio, or The Return to Life, and he organized a concert to showcase these works. An acquaintance of his knew someone who knew Harriet and thought it would be amusing if she were to attend. When she got into the carriage headed for the Conservatoire, she had no idea what was on the programme. As she entered the hall, she was met by sideways glances and whispers, 
it was widely known that she was the inspiration for the symphony. She was profoundly moved by the music, and as Berlioz related in his memoirs, she realized that Berlioz still loved her. Quote, from that moment, as she has often told me since, it seemed to her as if the room reeled. She heard no more and went home like one walking in her sleep, almost unconscious of what was happening around her. End of quote. Berlioz, agonized by how close he was to finally having his dreams come true, took matters into his own hands. He went to Harriet and threatened to commit suicide if she did not marry him at once. Surprisingly, it worked. They were soon married and, predictably, lived unhappily ever after. After a brief honeymoon period, they soon discovered that they were not suited to live together. They remained married but separated, and Berlioz continued to support her financially for the rest of her life. And so ends our strange tale, dear listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, go out and get a copy of Berlioz's memoirs. He's as brilliant a writer as he is a composer, and there is so much more to this story that we didn't have time for. Like the time Berlioz plotted a triple murder suicide, but gave up because the dress he was going to wear while doing it got lost when he changed carriages. Every page has something great on it. Read it. It'll be the most entertaining book you read all year. And remember, it's better to get to know someone before you become a monomaniac. If you don't, you might be driven to do something crazy, like write a symphony. On the Music is a co-production of the Houston Symphony and Houston Public Media. For more episodes and a complete list of credits, visit houstonsymphony.org slash onthemusic. Please send your questions, comments and feedback to onthemusic at houstonsymphony.org. Thank you for listening.